Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Cloth God, I am naked before you. I came here to be clothed in life, so I handed over to you all the rolling, uncut fabric, soft and patched, not happened yet. Patterns flowing like a generational glacier. Stand here, you say. I stand. And you begin to take measurements. I ask if you will make it plain and tidy, easy to move. But you cut out lavish, thick, and heavy swaths. I ask, why did you do that? But you can simply keep working, hemming the edges of the finest coat. I say, it's summer. But you just go on. I sit and contemplate your workspace till I spot the almanac open. This year's winter will be cold, you say, with your eyes, and continue to sew. Thank you. Uh, that is a poem I wrote uh, a long time ago. I have no idea when. Um, but here is my testimony slash uh, assassinate shame, not Shane. <laughs> or this is not a cry for help. Or uh, you are beloved. Um, first off, I'm Paul Gibson. In case you did not uh, hear that incredibly warm introduction. Thank you, Derek. Um, you may know me as Polly G, or even perhaps Paul Patrol, um, <laughs> spelled P-A-W-L. Um, I am not a student anymore, as Derek mentioned. I graduated last May, so thank you for letting me come in front of the mic. I feel unworthy of it and honored. I studied creative writing with a minor in math, but I am currently a townie, and permanently, it only gets worse by the minute, an old guy. I am the third of five children. I grew up homeschooled in Norfolk, Virginia, as well as Trujillo, Peru, all over Israel, and then St. Louis, Missouri. As per the CCF tradition, here are some pictures of my family very, very, very briefly. Uh, On the left, you see my dad and his doppelganger, and then over here, you see his doppelganger again, uh, the youngest sister, Ren, spelled W-R-E-N, my mother, Uh, My eldest sister, Madeline, who is married now to Sam Cook. And then next to Sam is my other older sister, Elise. And then next to her is my younger brother, Thomas. Um, And that's my whole family. And then there's me. I deliver food sometimes. I help people with homework at other times. I read a lot, and I write some. I like taking walks in bad weather and rollerblading in good weather and I love to find a good deal at the thrift store. I have lived on this planet for a measly 23 spirals around the sun as the sun hurtles around the galaxy, and I am here, as Derek said, to testify the kingdom of God and how, at least I believe, that I have seen it. All right, so if you live or were hanging around Halley in the last few days and you saw me writing this, here was the point where I wrote for five hours, and then I picked it all up and I tossed the whole thing in the garbage. Um, I did that for uh, two reasons. Uh, One, I was trying to talk about way too many things. Um, And two, I have this little voice in my head that follows me around and narrates everything I do and tells me how all of it belongs in the garbage. Um, So (laughs) I'm going to talk about that voice. Um, 
because although I'm usually pretty good at ignoring it, it still finds a way to be heard. It's pretty subtle, much like a air horn whoopee cushion. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to talk about the voice. <laughs> I'm going to tell a little story about last spring at the half house. Um, it's right next door to the CCF house, and it looks like a house except only half of one. Um, I sat at the dining room table one night eating chili and doom scrolling on my phone. And next to me, Josh T. and Jacob Nakelstoinks. I mean, sorry, I don't remember what his real name is anymore. Um, they were playing the infamously infuriating game of Smash Ultimate. <laughs> we have some fans. <laughs> if you've never played it, uh, Smash is one of those games that's notorious for bringing out the best and also the worst <laughs> in people. It's basically a glorified game of chicken mixed with rock, paper, scissors. Um, there is no chance involved in the game, merely your wits versus your opponents. If you win, it is ultimate domination. <laughs> But if you lose, you have only yourself to blame. <laughs> you have nothing else. When people rage quit Smash Ultimate, which happens quite frequently, the anger is directed outward at controllers, at opponents, etc. But it usually stems from disappointment in the self. <laughs> in my doom-scrolling stupor, I did what I never should have done. I began stoking the fire partially out of resentment towards the allure and power the game held over me, <laughs> and par partially because I was jealous and I wanted my roommates to pay more attention to me <laughs> instead of the TV. So without thinking about it, I started stoking the flames, pressing every conceivable button I could see, which was a lot of them because I lived with them, so I knew everything that annoyed them. Um, Every time Josh cried out or exclaimed in frustration rega with regards to the game, I sauntered in with an infuriating, well, maybe you should have just, whatever it was, pressed the button faster, <laughs> pressed the right button, <laughs> not been bad at the game, etc. <laughs> Needless to say, Josh, bless his soul, put up with an entire hour of this incessant <laughs> militaristic pestering and provocation before finally he turned around and he told me with slightly more eloquent uh, words than I'll use here, uh, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> now of the many times that I have been reprimanded, uh, this was definitely one of the more gentle times. Still, I was mortified. <laughs> My heart dropped. I began backpedaling fu furiously, hastily retreating at full speed behind a smoke screen of profuse apology and excuse making. I'm so sorry. I'm just tired. I didn't mean to actually aggravate you, etc., etc., etc. My heart pounding in my chest, my mind whirling with fear I, that I had just lost one of my closest friends, that I had ruined everything. I went through our weird bathroom and up the stairs and just sat on the ground reciting empty assurances to myself. It'll be fine. You're overthinking it. But those reassurances were all but drowned out in an oceanic liturgy of brutal self-condemnation. What on earth is wrong with you? The voice that calls everything I do garbage said. You just angered one of the most patient people in your life. No wonder you are alone. No wonder. It's, he's just been putting up with you this whole time, but in truth, you are unbearable. You'll never start a family. You are irreparably dysfunctional. You're a burden. You'll never find a home because no home wants you. I lay in bed that night for a long time, but I did not sleep. My whole body felt like it was burning, smoldering on the inside. 
I remember that voice that follows me around, criticizing everything I do and am, the voice that even now whispers to me that nobody is listening, that you have nothing worthwhile to say. I remember that voice saying, I told you so. I told you so. I say this not as a cry for help. I say this not to fish for compliments or reassurances. But I say this because I suspect that I'm not the only one, that we each have some version of this voice that follows us around telling us that we are not enough, that we do not just make mistakes, that we are mistakes. Ah, the voice of shame. But I don't think I need to explain shame to you. You probably know this feeling. You've probably had it wielded against you like a weapon. From inside and outside the church, you've been condemned, you've been canceled, you've been bullied, you've been mocked and ridiculed, you've been gossiped about, you've been accused not just of doing wrong, but of being wrong. In my little story about making one of my best friends frustrated with me, I know some of you know that this is the least of my shames. That I am sometimes careless with words is simply the most presentable of my flaws. That my sharp tongue has driven people away, destroyed good relationships in my life, that is merely the one face on the beastly, shameful creature that I can bear to show in the light, that I have courage left to share. It's the edge of a long list of accusers, of records warped by fear and shame. It's the footnote to a history of self-abuse fueled and cultivated by myself and by toxic high school friend groups, by manipulative relationships, by emotionally abusive and dysfunctional family dynamics of addiction, of self-destructive tendencies, of unpacked countless grievances whose inflictors continue to minimize and deny, brushed over by empty apologies and gaslightings, broken friendships, wounds, and betrayals, that I am barely able to admit to myself, let alone ready to share here. So that night, in bed, sleepless and silent, staring up at the ceiling, I vowed for the hundredth time to never let my careless words hurt any other people. And yet, only a few months later, I would do it again. This time, I was spending my summer in Kirksville, working the night shift at Upward Bound, and I had just exited a particular tum particularly tumultuous semester. And although the nights were long and lonely, they were quiet and peaceful too. Caleb DeWitt and I were living at Halley on opposite schedules. I was awake all night, alone at work, and he was awake during the day. 90% of my social life consisted of sitting on the couch. Me hunched over my 7 p.m. granola breakfast with a glass of orange juice, having just woken up, and Caleb over his dinner, just back from work, watching 30 Rock, Monk, and or Transformers. I won't relay all the gritty details. It's sufficient to say that this time my careless words did not so much anger him as they hurt him. Once again, my ever faithful voice in my mind whispered, reminding me how foolish I was, isolating me, making me alone in my shame. I retreated once again into the sleepless night, all but overwhelmed with the fear that I had ruined yet another good thing. Sometimes it feels like I can fight the shame on my own, alone. By either saying, it's okay, everything is okay, the things I did were not that bad. Or by saying, I just make, I'll just make myself more lovable, smarter, less awkward, more funny, more accomplished, more athletic, more etc. Then I'll regain my sense of worth, my value as a person. 
but we aren't machines. We aren't perfect. And if I rely on my accomplishments, on my intelligence or my strength or niceness or humor to define my self-worth, when inevitably I mess up, small or big, accidentally spoiling a movie or betraying a loved one, then suddenly my value is on the line. Shame takes the question, what did I do wrong and makes it, what is wrong with me? So long as I find my worth in these doings. So I'm told I should find my value, my sense of worth in Christ. And in theory, I think that is the right answer. Christ will never let you down. But my faith in Christ is my own. And it is a human faith, and it wavers, and I encounter seasons of uncertainty, of doubt. Where then is my worth? What is to be done to assure my value on this earth? It is not enough to know that I am enough, that you are enough, although that is certainly beyond a shadow of a doubt true. It is not enough to deny the harm of my actions throughout my life. I guarantee that I have and will hurt people whom I love, and that you will do the same. The solution is not to stop loving. It's not to collapse deeper into myself, into despair. That road leads to a hardening of the heart towards myself and towards others. There is only one thing I've found left to do. One thing to do that hasn't or won't betray me, that doesn't have a catch, that doesn't have diminishing returns. There is only one thing left to do when all my money is run out, when all my wealth is squandered, when all my friends have lost interest and abandoned me. There is only one thing left to do, and it isn't so much a thing to do as it is a place to show up. A road towards home to walk, to look up and see the one I've betrayed running towards me, unceremonious and filled with unknown urgency, to wonder if he's running towards the prodigal son to redeem me or to berate and accuse me rightly of the foolish disloyalty which I've indulged. The rooster crows three times. Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and it's the last time they interact before his death. Was it a look of disappointment? A look of piercing condemnation? Of sadness, perhaps, or some kind of lost innocence? Peter goes out and whips bitterly. Yes. Surely he feels shame, for he has denied Christ three times. He has let fear take such a foothold of authority within him that he has betrayed his leader, his teacher, the one whom he swore to follow even to death. And later, after the resurrection, when Peter's in the boat and hears John say, It is the Lord! He abandons all miraculous pretense of walking on water, and he leaps headlong into the sea. He has no idea if Christ will scold him, condemn him. He has not even seen him himself, but he does the only thing worth doing, and he goes. He goes out of himself, swimming towards Jesus, eyes open. Jesus waits with the grace of God to reinstate Peter. At the end of the sleepless night last spring, beating myself over the head for making Josh T. upset, the unsurprising thing eventually happened. Morning came. I got up, for I was still awake. I dressed. Timidly, I walked downstairs, bracing myself for a new reality, bracing myself for the deserved animosity and emotional tension the hostile atmosphere that had surely befallen my friendship with Joshua. I made my way through our weird bathroom hallway staircase into the living room. 
I hear Josh in the kitchen, but he's heard me first, and I shuffle around the corner to him, standing arms wide, huge welcoming grin on his face. Paul, he says, good morning. How did you sleep? Not good. And he says, look at this guy. (laughs) And that, my dearly beloved friends, that is where I have seen the kingdom of God. That, my friends, is a taste of his abounding love, his everlasting mercy and immeasurable grace. It's not in my ability to be perfect and smart and awesome and funny and nice. It's in Caleb DeWitt's heart when he, despite my careless words, continues to invite me to just sit across from him on the couch while we eat pizza and watch 30 Rock. It's Caleb when, despite my insensitive moments, invited people over for me while I slept through the day so that I woke up to a house full of joy and community who despite my never doing the dishes, still found time to take walks with me in the evening and take crazy pictures of the sunset. It's in my buddy Patrick, who even though I've done a miserable job keeping in touch with him over the years, still traveled all the way from Georgia to witness my baptism last May and then had crazy food poisoning. It's in my little brother, to whom I was truly an awful brother growing up in so many ways, and yet he still found time to illustrate an entire book of my poems this summer and then politely refused payment, instead thanking me for the opportunity. I am worth what I am worth, not because I've done something to deserve it, not because I've answered shame with accomplishments or accolades. I am worth what I am worth because of the almost incomprehensible grace of God. I'm here to try and try and try to convince you of something that I've never been able to convince myself. I'm here to try by every method known to me to convince you that you are lovable and beloved, not because you are or are not in a relationship, not because you are right about everything, not because you care so well for the people around you, not because you've achieved all the great accolades and good grades that you certainly did, not because you are special, which you are, not because you are intelligent and prepared, not because you have achieved a sense of security in your life, not because you are the funniest person in the room, not because you are strong or athletic, not because you are laid back and easy to get along with or creative. Though no doubt you are some of all these good things, that is not why you are loved. You are loved unconditionally by God who created you. There is no because. There is no thing you could do to surprise him. There are no hidden deal breakers. We are limited. We come, we go, we are easily surprised and confused. But God made us in his image to reflect his love to each other. Just because I can't see the light doesn't mean it's not shining on me. It's usually because my head is just down. Look up, Paul. See the light shining down on all of us. Refracted off and through us, we belong. We are not needed, but we are wanted. So go, do better, be better. Not because you must, but because you can. You are here, you are here. You didn't have to be. There's no reason, no law of physics that demands that your consciousness, that your life exist here, now, with everyone else. As the priest at the end of Robert Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest says, all is grace. Do you know what grace is? Because I did not. I did not know the difference between grace and mercy until I watched that movie. It was Reed's living room my sophomore year at a group, a small group movie night. 
I was sitting in the world's creakiest chair, holding myself as still as possible. No option but to be absorbed in this strange old French film filled with pain and yearning and beauty. Until I heard that closing line, all is grace. I'd spent my life content with a merciful God, patiently withholding all that is that condemnation and punishment and damnation which we have earned and inherited. Mercy is withholding that which we deserve, and God is merciful. But grace is extra. It's receiving that which we don't deserve. Not just the absence of punishment, but the presence of the most lavish of gifts, life. All is grace. All is grace. All is grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But we are drowning in it every day. The very air that we breathe, it's not guaranteed. And that grace is why we are loved, lovable, valuable. That grace is what gives us worth. That grace is the end of shame, of self-condemnation. It does not deny the hurt, the grievances, the wounds. It does not minimize or gaslight the victims of our inadequacies. It does not cast off blame onto others, but answers the lie of our irredeemability with the truth that we have been redeemed already. Now, not yet. Although, even though as I say this, that all of you are loved, that all of you are his beloved, I know it to be true, and yet I can barely convince myself. At the best of times of its truth, I feel as if I'm trying to give all of you something I still struggle to give myself. I'm trying to give something away that I do not own. I'm trying desperately to create the miracle of the empty hands, as they call it in the diary of a country priest. I'm trying to remember those bright moments in my life where it seemed so clear and shining, trying to fan the coals back to embers, warm us in the heat of a neglected flame. But I want so, so badly to convince you that you are beloved, that all of our scrambling does nothing, does something, but does not declare our worth in this life or the next. I've seen this lie of shame destroy so much goodness in me and in those I love to go on watching without saying something. I've seen so many capable people crushed by the daily, weekly reminders of their shortfallings, their flaws, their humanity, accumulating inevitably and unnecessarily until even the remarkable strength of their spirit bends and collapses beneath the weight of shame. I want this for each and every one of you so, so, so badly. I brainstormed all of my topics, all the parts of my life that I could share, and as soon as I looked at the list, there was no doubt in my mind what was most important. There was no question in me, I am not needed at CCF but I belong. We are not needed by the kingdom of God, but he has chosen us anyway to be conduits of his overflowing grace, pouring out into the lives of those around us. He has invited us to be the answers to each other's prayers, even with our flaws and mistakes and scrambling. Take a moment of stillness. Shut off the car and just sit in the Thousand Hills parking lot, listening to the shape of wind around your window. As the swallows flit through the mist, God's grace is never surprised by your humanity. Turn to him, lean to him. The patient stillness and moving grace of God will never abandon you. 
The sun sets, but it has not left you behind. Be gentle with yourself. You have only one heart and mind, one life given freely from the immeasurable ocean of God's grace. Psalm 139 says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and even the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my uniformed, unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. <laughs> 